So in my opinion, you lose a lot of the equity on day one when purchasing turnkeys. So I love multifamily because there's multiple ways to drive revenue and there's multiple ways to control expenses and drive the bottom line. It's very creative. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Kyle Mitchell from the Passive Income through Multifamily Real Estate podcast. Kyle got out of the corporate world. He was in the golf property management business, got out of that corporate world and got into multifamily real estate. He was a single family investor for a number of years before that and took some time, got into multifamily syndication and just hit the ground running. He's out of the corporate world, buying properties. And today he's teaching us about some of the lessons he learned along the way, what helped him uh, grow that portfolio, get it all financed, raise the money, all that good stuff and, and partnering with investors. Such great lessons for both active and passive investors. We're getting an inside look at a successful multifamily syndication business. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and share the return. Love talking about real estate and today is no exception. Thank you for tuning in. Here we go with Kyle Mitchell. Kyle, thanks for joining Taylor, us thanks today. for having me on. Appreciate it. Great to chat with you here in these crazy times. For those out there who don't know about you and don't know about your company, can you tell us a bit about... Yeah, absolutely. Our company is Limitless Estates. And what we do is we purchase apartment buildings in the Arizona markets. And we do that through uh, what's known as multifamily syndication. And we raise capital to purchase these larger um, investments. And uh, we go in and, and add value to these properties. Typically, they're under under capitalized and running inefficiently. We go in there and, and put some capital in there and our management skills and uh, turn the properties around and then provide our investors with a return. Nice. Great strategy. You know, I do the same. So we're a big fan of multifamily syndication around these parts. And, you know, you, you made a, a great transition going from your professional life now to being a, a full-time real estate investor. Can you walk us through, you know, some, what some of that process was like and how things have gone for you and uh, getting out to be yeah, a full-time? Yeah, absolutely. So in my uh, prior career, I was a regional manager for a golf management company. And that's basically exactly like a property management company for apartments, but for golf courses. So for 15 years, you know, I was a, a regional and general manager of uh, multi-million dollar golf courses, managed people, hired, fired, implemented systems. And that's all the things that go along with managing an apartment building as well. So I love that job actually. And uh, I did it for 15 years, but it got to a point where the company was shrinking, the industry itself was shrinking, and there was less and less opportunity to continue growing. So in about 2015, I started looking for some other careers and started um, setting up my exit strategy basically and saving up some money for the time where I would leave and, and find another career. And uh, I wanted to do something where, it, you know, I was my own boss, I was an entrepreneur and, and running my own business. So it wasn't just a transition into another job. And it took a lot longer to find uh, what that career path was going to be. But uh, two and a half, three years later, I stumbled across multifamily. I had been investing in single family homes for about seven years at that point. And uh, as soon as I found it, I understood the business model. It clicked in my head. And uh, I started uh, setting up my business. And 11 months later, I, I quit my job to do this full time. So, you know, typically people do not leave their full time job 
and you know, I was making good money um, to go make zero dollars because I did that actually before we had gotten our first multifamily deal. But I was all in. I knew I wanted to leave, and we were very close to getting a deal. We were making offers. We had set up our investor database and our network that first twelve months, and then we started making offers. And about a month and a half after I left my full time job, we got our first deal. So, you know, we're nice. about. Uh, a year and a half in after leaving that, we've got two deals now in the Arizona markets and looking to expand and, and grow more. That's awesome and and good on you. I wanted to, you know, get some some inside information on what it was like financing that first deal and and things that you needed to know to, you know, get that that first loan, especially now the the lending market's kind of tight. But you know, there are skills that we can learn and we need to know in order to, to finance our first apartment complex. So, you know, walk us through it. And what did you need to know in, in getting that first deal? Yeah, loan? you don't know what you don't know. And I learned a lot on that first deal with the lending. It's a perfect question because that's, that's the area where we struggled the most probably with closing on this deal. At first, it was my wife and I who own our company that were going to do the deal by ourselves. It's a 42-unit property, $1.65 million. And we're going to raise about $1 million for this property. And our parents were going to sign on the loan. So no one in this group had any multifamily experience. You know, I had my, I had my single family home experience for sure, but no actual multifamily experience. And neither did our parents. So we were going to go to Fre- with a Freddie Mac loan and a small balance loan. And everything was fine um, up until the point where we felt a little uncomfortable with how much money we were going to raise. Uh, we needed to raise a million dollars, and we were about halfway there with just a couple, uh, about a month left to to close. And this was our first time raising capital. And so I told myself that if in three weeks we were not, you know, seventy five percent of the way there, that we would bring on another partner to help us close on the deal and asset management and sign on the loan. And unfortunately, we had already gone down the road of filing our application with Freddie. And they came back to us and said, um, it's too late. We're not going to underwrite another partner. We've got to go with the team that you're going with. And so that was a shock to me because we had communicated what our business plan was going to be to our broker. Um, But somewhere in between that, the lines got crossed and and, um, that fell through. So we were stuck between a rock and a hard place there because it was either continue raising and maybe not get to the full amount, which we could still close, but we couldn't execute our business plan, which is the most important thing. Or switch lenders with 30 days left, essentially, and roll the dice that we can get it closed. So, you know, after a lot of back and forth and and begging that lender to, to work with us, we ended up leaving and going with a Fannie Mae small balance loan. And when you go to Fannie Mae, you need someone with two years of multifamily experience and someone who has signed on the loan. So now all of a sudden, we were not only switching lenders, we were putting together a new team because our parents were no longer the ones that could sign. Uh, luckily, you know, we had been building partnerships for a year and a half at that point. And uh, we knew we had some people that we wanted to do some deals with going forward. And so those two people came on, signed on the loan, and uh, with 29 days left to close, we switched over to the Fannie Mae loan. Ended up getting an 81 basis point discount on the interest rate because we switched at the right time. But uh, everything worked out with that, but it could have gone the exact opposite. 
the biggest thing that we learned is make sure all your ducks are in a row before you even get the deal. Know who the team's going to be. Know what you need to close. And if you've never done it before, bring someone on that does have experience so they can walk you through the process. Because there's just so many small things you don't know about the lending environment that can throw your deal off track. And you've got so much going on, you know, especially if you're syndicating, you're raising capital, you're getting your PPM going, all that kind of stuff. It's not just the lender that you're dealing with. So, you know, have a team there in place to help you with that. Wow. That sounds like it was a very stressful time and, you know, it's good on you for making it through that. Now, uh, going through and, and raising, you know, your first capital, or you're raising capital the first time around. What was that like? I mean, it sounded like, you know, maybe you didn't quite get, you know, the the amount of investor capital you wanted, at least initially. So, you know, what what was that like? What were your best sources of capital? And, you know, what did you learn along the way? How'd you, how did you improve and do a better job on the, the second deal? You know, yeah, I think overall we did a pretty good job. I think just not knowing, you know, what it's like to raise capital for the first time. It's interesting because you always get yeah. I, I say now it's a look behind the curtains of people's lives. I mean, you're really dealing with people's lives at that point, right? Someone's gonna give you fifty thousand dollars and what's going on in their life at the time that you present them the deal. You know, we've had anywhere from someone in the family died to, hey, we're on vacation for three weeks to we need to show liquidity because we're buying another investment property. So, you know, all these people that tell you, yes, they want to invest, it doesn't mean that they're going to invest on that next deal because it's all about timing and where they're at in their lives. So you've got to understand that. So if you have a million dollars in commitments a million dollars is not going to come through in the bank. You know, it's, it's probably half that or depending on the situation, maybe even less. So we felt that we could raise that million. We ended up raising 900,000 and turned a couple of people nice. away at the end. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we wanted to make sure we can get the deal closed and that our first deal runs without a hitch. So that's why we brought on the other partners. But, you know, we, we were building our investor database for 12 plus months before we started raising on that first deal. So if we would have gotten a deal six months earlier, we just would not have been ready because our investors were not ready. So, you know, we started a meetup and then we had also started a podcast. And those were, besides friends and family, were the two sources um, that we got our investors from. And, you know, we just continue to do those things. And, and the biggest thing with, with raising capital, in my opinion, is, is relationships and adding value and, and back to other people. And the more you give out, the, the more you get back. That's that's great. It's great you're able to turn those two funnels, those two strategies, the meetup and the podcast into results. That's fantastic. It's not an easy thing to do. Now, tell us about the the second deal. What was that? You know, what what were the aspects of the deal? What did you end up having to to raise to close it? And you know, what maybe you did some things differently on the second one, whether it's change of markets or I don't know. What was that? Uh, what was that like? How'd you change? Yeah, that? we had partners basically is, is the biggest thing. Ah, but uh, okay. three weeks after we closed on that property, on the first property, we found our second property. And I think if we didn't partner with the guys that we did on the first property, I would have never seen the other uh, the second one because one of those partners, he's got a full-time job and he had closed on a couple other deals in the Phoenix market with this broker. And they threw it his way and uh, they said, hey, do you want to take a look at it before we send it to market? And he didn't have time to underwrite it. So he sent it to me because we had just closed on this deal. 
And so I underwrote it. We were out there in the market the next day and we got it in the, under contract the following day. So uh, we acted quick, um, decisive, and uh, we had the team in place prior. But on that one, you know, we went from having to raise a million dollars to $5.7 million. And so that's a huge jump. You know, our first deal was a $1.6 million deal. This one was $15.1 million. So, you know, challenges along the way on that one too, with the lending environment going from a, a small balance loan to a conventional loan. There are differences between the two. And the underwriting is much more, you know, uh, strict when it comes to that kind of stuff because it's a much bigger loan. So I uh, learned a lot of things, but it was just really the biggest thing was having the ducks in the row prior to getting the deal. And really it came from the the bringing on the partners on the first deal. Wow. So it sounds like you really learned some fantastic lessons. I mean, it's a, a big step to scale from raising in the million to the to the $5 million range. So, you know, that's excellent. Did it stay the same that your uh, investors are mainly coming through your meetup at the podcast or was it, you know, that change? I think that it was about the same. It's just more people saw us get the first deal done and it had only been three weeks, right? So it's not like there was this huge difference in, in performance. I mean, we, it was too early to show the performance of the first property, but the fact that we got something under our belt and got a deal done, more people who had said, Hey, let me, let me see how you do on your first deal. And uh, I'll come in on the second one. You know, these people we'd still have been building a relationship with. And um, I, I think that's kind of one of the things that got them underway. We also had our other partners at that time who were helping along with the raise as well. So I certainly didn't raise the whole $5.7 million by myself on that one. But with a couple of partners, um, we were able to get it done. Nice. Awesome. So throughout this whole process, there's clearly been a lot of taking risks and getting out of your comfort zone. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to leave your leave your day job before you have, you know, certainty in front of you. Now, you know, it's it's worked out for you, so that's great, but you didn't know it was going to work out. So there's a lot of bravery in there. So what's it been like getting out of that comfort zone and the job that you've known for over a decade and really breaking out on your own? Yeah. I mean, at first it was scary, right? And it was not something that I was really... I would not be a person if you talked to me three years ago that ever got out of my comfort zone. I stayed in my little in my little circle and that's it. And I had my very secure job and, and all that stuff. And since leaving, uh, my wife and I now a couple of times a year try and do things that get us outside of our comfort zone, you know, whether that's doing a $15 million deal or um, we're going to be moving to Arizona later this year and starting a podcast, uh, starting a meetup in Phoenix, all sorts of things like that. But um, it is all about getting outside of your comfort zone because if you don't get outside of it, you don't grow. And it's amazing how quickly you grow when you start stepping outside of your comfort zone. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, now that we're, at least as we're recording, everybody is quarantined at home. So our, our comfort zone is, you know, where we have to stay, unfortunately, but we can still get out there in the digital way and still network with people. So we just have to be resourceful with what's available to us. Are there any other, you know, important lessons before we go on to my three favorite questions? Any important lessons that you want to share with our listeners about getting into multifamily real estate investing, particularly, you know, with a single family background? Um, you know, you made a made a pretty big leap. There's a, there's got to be some important lessons you learned as a single family investor that drove you into multifamily. I mean, I I want to really nail down, dig down into that as well. 
Yeah. So with single family, you know, I was buying turnkeys mainly because I had my full-time job. And so I wanted something pretty passive, but you know, with single families as passive as people make it, they're really not passive investments in my opinion. And, you know, with turnkeys, which is probably one of my bigger mistakes in purchasing, you lose a lot of the equity in day one, Hmm. you know, because everyone else has got to make the, make up their piece of the pie. And so in my opinion, you know, you lose a lot of the equity on day one when purchasing turnkeys. So I love multifamily because there's multiple ways to drive revenue and there's multiple ways to control expenses and drive the bottom line. It's very creative. And single family to me is very singular. There's not a lot of ways to make you know, more money on a single family home. And that's one of the many reasons why I love multifamily um, because of the flexibility and the creativity that it allows. It's interesting you say that you lose a lot of the equity in day one on turnkeys. Can you like explain what you mean by that? I mean, is that basically you are, you know, in turnkey, you're overpaying for the properties on the, on the whole, and you wouldn't be able to resell for what you paid for them? Or, you know, what does that really mean? I think it's just like driving a brand new car off of a lot, right? The second you drive it off, it loses its value. And so, you know, when you're buying turnkeys, you've got the, typically you're working through a middleman, a provider, like a broker, right? And so he needs to make his $5,000 fee. Where does that come from? That's built into the price of the home. You know, then you've got the house flipper who needs to make their fee. And so there's a lot of fees in there that are kind of hidden that I think, you know, when you're buying $100,000 homes, there's not a lot of wiggle room to change, a, you know, the return from a, an 8% return to 15 to even 2%. So that's what I mean by that. I just mm-hmm. think there's a lot of people that need to get paid. And I think that if you bought a $100,000 turnkey property from a provider like a broker, you could not sell that thing for $100,000 the next day. You know, I have to wait for the market to catch up. And sometimes that could be a long time, if at all. Yeah, exactly. I think if you are getting into turnkey, not that turnkey is the worst investment in the world. I just think that if if you are, it needs to be a very long-term hold. And it's a longer-term play where you want your money to to sit and, and, and grow slowly, which, you know, real estate is a slow-growing investment for sure. It's not get-rich-quick by any means. But, you know, if you're going to buy turnkey, I would suggest your, your plan is you're holding on to it for 20 or 30 years. Mm, and really riding it out because it uh, seems like they're not... A lot of these turnkey properties are not a huge amount of cash flow. And while it's supposed to be fixed up when you get it, like any major repair that comes along could potentially wipe out your cash flow for a year or two years. Yeah, turnkey is a subjective word. You know, um, you definitely have to do your due diligence because one person selling a turnkey property could be beautiful, and another one could just mean, you know, barely rent ready. And the next time someone moves, out, you may have to spend five grand on getting that property back up to where it should be. I mean, I've had my properties. I've done okay on my single families, but they haven't been great. But I had one property where you know I had to spend seven grand to fix up the property because the 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 resident tore it to shreds, yeah. painted the walls black, and so when you do that, that's a year and a half worth of uh, profit um, rented out. You know, because you're you're not making a thousand bucks a month on these single families. You're making a couple hundred bucks a month. So, you know, you're, if you don't have reserves and, and set aside for vacancy and, and maintenance, your profits can get eaten up pretty quickly. And then even still, it's just turnkey to me or single family to me looks better on paper than it does in real life. And there's not a lot of upside from that performa 
Whereas with multifamily, there's a lot more upside if you're creative enough. Hmm. Interesting. Is that due to the scale that you think multifamily is better or is it that the valuation is a lot different? The valuation process is a lot different for multifamily or all of the above? I mean, there's a a lot of advantages. Yeah, all of the above. Obviously, the better you operate your multifamily property, the more it's going to sell for, right? Whereas it doesn't matter in single family. If you have the exact two same houses sitting next to each other, they're going to sell for about the same. It doesn't matter what the bottom line on those properties really is. It's it's two bed, two bath, and you know they're they're the same uh, quality. So uh, definitely that piece of it. And then, like I was talking about earlier, just more flexibility to do different things to drive revenue and, and control expenses. There's so many different angles that you can take, um, and so many different ways that you can leverage to scale a multifamily. Nice, nice. Thanks for those lessons. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Kyle, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah, it has to be the 42 unit that we got last year in Tucson. Um, if you look in Tucson right now, there's there's nothing in the price range that we bought it at. We bought it at 39K a door. Uh, we've already got it listed for sale now for 71K a door. We've raised the rents uh, three times. We're 100% occupied. And even with all this COVID stuff right now, we've collected 98% of the rents. This one's ended up uh, being a home run. Wow, that's awesome. On the other side of the best investment coin, we have the worst investment what is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, single family turnkeys in the Chicago market. Oh. My other my other two markets have actually done okay, which are Ohio and Arkansas. But I I had a rule, which was um, don't buy in any market that is not landlord friendly. And I forgot that rule and started chasing cash flow. Ah. And so I bought in Chicago and that's just been one of the worst investments. It takes months to get people out and it's just not in a good neighborhood. And so that has cost me some money for sure. Wow. Wow. You got to remember your rules, Yep. not chase the numbers. Yep. Nice. Well, my favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business investing? Yeah, it's all about consistency. You know, um, if you want to separate yourself from others and your competition, it sounds very simple, but all the key is consistency. If you do things on a consistent basis, people will start to follow you and believe in you and see that you're serious. Most people out there have a very hard time on being consistent. That's true. It is hard, you know, especially in these these turbulent times. It's easy to lose sight of the long-term plan and forget to execute every day, just being distracted by all the bad news out there about coronavirus and you know all these things. So got to stay focused and, and execute the plan. Kyle, if folks want to learn more about you, more about your show, more about your company, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, great. Thanks for that. We also have a podcast. It's called uh, Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate. Uh, we air twice a week, once on Mondays, which is for passive investors, and once on Fridays, which is actually focused on helping asset managers on operations. Uh, and then our website is limitless-estates.com. We've got a free passive investors guide for anyone that wants to go there and learn more about what we do and, and the things you need to learn about syndication before you get into it. 
Oh, cool. Well, thanks for joining us once again. It's congratulations on your success and getting out of the golf world. Um, I think especially now as you know, some of those luxury businesses are being shut down and people are being let go. You know, it's an even better time to have gotten out of, of that world. So good on you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great to talk with you. Everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's a very big help. If you know anyone else who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.